Welcome to the Grassroots Government Podcast. It's uh, been a little bit since we've all gotten together, but sitting in my office is Carl Wiggers, our producer, Andy Brown, the National Affairs Coordinator for the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation, and the man who drops his phone right at the beginning of the podcast, Neil Melanson, <laughs> one of the uh, producers of This Week in Louisiana Agriculture and one of the uh, the people who I always turn to whenever I want to know the history in terms of how that affects Farm Bureau, because he's been he's, here the longest. He's old. That's what that's what wow. Amy just called you, is old. Wow. That's not true. Well, he has kids and I don't, so he's older. <laughs> <laughs> and what, you're six months older than I am? Six months, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, long in the tooth. Let's talk about why Neil's in here. Why Neil's in here. He's in here because he's been out on the ground with Andy and covering the story that we're going to be mainly talking about today. Yep. So we're mostly going to be talking about things that are going on right now, but we need to kind of talk a little bit about things that have happened since the last time we got together. One, uh, the Louisiana Farm Bureau has moved into a new building. So that meant moving all of our stuff, our equipment and having to tear things down, put it back together. <laughs> and uh, that was fun. We've also had our family grow a little bit, literally, uh, because... Carl and his wife, Brittany, have welcomed a baby boy into their lives. We did. Brady. Brady Scott. Brady Scott Wiggers. How is that, Daddy? It's awesome. I'm a big fan of uh, fatherhood. Uh, You know, also a big fan of coffee and anything else caffeinated lately. Uh, But it's fun. I'm a big fan of, uh, of, uh, it's, I I keep saying big fan, but like, it's, the best job ever and i love this job at farm bureau but being a dad's even better so uh, i know andy fun. can relate i can and shout out to my brother he just had his first little girl yesterday so he and his wife jessica welcomed a little girl adding to the brown family so the whole family's family's farm bureau fam <laughs> that's awesome he's gonna be calling you for advice on girls with you know you have an evie yeah he's older brother but uh young brother gets to school him on this one <laughs> and then our Good friend and co-worker, Kristen Oaks-White, she and Landon, her husband, welcomed a baby boy into their lives as well. So, lots going on here. And so, I think the last time we really were able to catch up with everyone, we were sitting down talking to Speaker of the House, Clay Sheck Snyder, Mm -hmm. about the session. And since then, we've caught up with him to find out what his thoughts were now that session is done. Let's uh, take a listen to that. It was a huge, it was a lot amount of money that we put in the largest amount ever by the state and on federal side. It's gonna help our farmers in a big way, repairing bridges and roads roads that they need to travel down to get product to one place or the other. Being able to have them transported, people from out of the state coming in to be able to get it out quicker. It's a huge investment that the state made on its side. When it comes to the budget, one of the largest budgets ever. But you look at it, it was a conservative budget. We were able to park $100 million in a savings account for down the road. But we made huge investments in shovel-ready projects that not only are going to help our farmers and help those people, but also put people to work so that if we do hit into a recession, we're going to have construction jobs and dirt jobs that people will still be able to participate in, where Louisiana will have a much softer blow to it than anybody else. A big budget, but also we talked about softening the blow. Well, we know that in agriculture culture because when you diversify that's how you soften the blow of anything any one thing having problems on the farm but infrastructure is really important for our farmers like he said and there's there are things going on infrastructure wise that the federal government's over and then we're talking about the uh, the closing of the locks at the uh, old river lock system 
Yeah, it's something, honestly, we don't track close enough, which is why it kind of snuck up on us of uh, something we, we would hope for, which is infrastructure improvement. But uh, earlier this year, I guess it was in April, uh, out of the blue during a state board meeting, I get an email that notifies us uh, through our, our buddies in marketing that two elevators, large grain elevators in the state of Louisiana are, are going to be impacted by the dewatering of the Old River Lock, which is the main hub for barges to come off the Mississippi River into the Chafalaya Basin and back out to the Mississippi River. I love the federal term there, dewatering. Mm. <laughs> Not draining. It wasn't closed. It was dewatered. But for all intents and purposes for a soybean or a corn farmer, uh, it was going to be closed. And for 90 days, and that particular 90 days happened to be uh, August through November. So all of y'all know what happens in Louisiana during that time. Uh, it's called harvest. Unfortunately, that memo did not get to uh, the Corps of Engineers when they selected their dates. But uh, through a really robust grassroots effort, I mean, what we preach on this thing every time we hit record came to life, and it was awesome. Uh, it was one of the things I uh, have worked hardest on and, and saw our members rally around since I've been in this job. And uh, we were able to take six farmers to New Orleans and sit down. Uh, with the colonel that's over the New Orleans district uh, and and also the Vicksburg uh, district and make some headway. So just to not belabor the point, uh, without our grassroots effort, that lock would have been closed for 90 days. And after that meeting, about a week later, uh, they pushed it back 15 days and then also added in another 15 uh, of some kind of partial opening, some nighttime travel. To let barges uh, kind of bleed a little pressure off of our our uh, elevator system, inland elevator system. So huge win for Louisiana farmers, and was a an effort led by the Farm Bureau. We had some partners in that, uh, the Cotton and Grain Association, and some other friends that uh, National Grain and Feed Association. It was a real coalition effort, American Farm Bureau as well. But uh, you can put all the acronyms you want. Until those six farmers got in the room and and uh, laid the law down, but you know also were uh, hat in hand and, and and diplomatic. That's where that's where the the magic happened. Just for people that maybe are trying to figure out what what are those six farmers doing for someone that maybe stumbles across this that is not a farmer. Who what is the impact on those? I mean, what's that dewatering? How does that affect those farmers? Those six farmers you're talking about? What does that? What did that mean? What was the the actual impact? So the the grain transportation world is all about timing and all about uh, on time delivery and being being able to to move grain out to maintain quality and, and make shipments. So for the farmer, they're a price taker. Uh, they might book their grain in the futures market and try to capitalize on the best price they can. But the grain elevator ultimately, or the grain buying merchandising company, ultimately has a lot of power in what that final dollar is back to the farmer. Uh, they can use basis, which kind of factors in. It takes that market price and, and can change what they actually pay out to the farmer to cover some logistical costs uh, like trucking or barge expense 
But then there's times where uh, they want to they want to meet some high demand at times of year that, and that's really the advantage Louisiana has always had is we're the first to market for the the harvest season and we're the closest to the ports. So a lot of times in August or July and August, we see a positive basis. We see a, a premium to get our grain out there. And uh, if we hadn't, you know, if we couldn't capitalize on that, that's that's margin that our farmers count on. And just to clarify, a positive basis means money paid above what the market price is. Yeah, when it's a premium. A, yeah. So when there's a negative basis, that's deducted from what the market price is. So if it's six fifty a bushel with a uh, a positive basis of fifty cents, you would get seven dollars a bushel. That's right. And if it's a negative fifty cents, you would only get six dollars a bushel. One of the things also I think it's important to point out is this delay proved crucial this year because the rain delays, especially the last couple of weeks of August, push back harvest for many people. For instance, we're only at about 85% done corn harvest here on September 8th, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, we are behind the five-year average on that. And men um, reports from uh, some of the LSU Ag Center people say there's still corn standing in the field somewhere. Andy and I saw it. He's... Uh, and we were both surprised at seeing so much corn still around when we went last week. Yeah, so this is really, you know, as we catch up on where we've been, we're we're sitting in New Orleans in the Corps of Engineers office fighting for this. Uh, we're there now, but at the time, we didn't exactly know how important this would really be. Well, fast forward to what I've been working on lately, uh, and that's the rain event that occurred in that 15-day window that we captured has been huge, has been devastating, and has changed the game of what this harvest season looks like. Yeah, let's go ahead and make that segue from the infrastructure issues to the disaster issue that we're facing now. I mean, you had Northwest Louisiana talking about drought conditions at the beginning of August, going 60 days without any measurable rain, to now we're looking at real flooding disaster and 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 rain uh delay disaster a slow moving storm if you will of just every day getting a significant amount of rain preventing harvest and and damaging some of these soybeans and neil you and andy i'm the only one in this room who hasn't traveled uh around the state with andy i kind of feel left out maybe maybe i don't don't do something right but tell me a little bit about your trip that you made with andy sure one of the first things I want to do is put this into context because the national narrative going on right now and even international is drought. You see record heat wave in Europe. You see uh, really dry fields, dry pastures in the western parts, many places in the Midwest. And as you pointed out, even in Louisiana, the northwest corner, even the southwest corner was in drought for a lot, a lot of the time when it should have been rain. So the thing on everybody's minds, on our consumers, especially the politicians in D.C., is drought. So now we're trying to sell them about this idea of rain. And um, like Andy and I went out and talked to Will Miller there in Concordia Parish. And Will said he recalls it distinctly. He woke up on August 18th and it was like somebody turned on a spigot. He got five inches of rain that day. And then for the next eight to nine days, he got rainfall of some measurable amounts that added up to about 11 inches, right? About a foot total when he, 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 uh, you know, calculated in right at a critical time in the growing uh, area of era of um, soybean production. And so when we went up there, we saw two things. One, 
He had a massive field that was pretty close. I think the field we were in was 1,500 acres. He had about 2,000 left of soybeans, right? That's right. And black, as far as the eye could see. Wow. There's pictures on our Facebook page on This Week in Louisiana Agriculture, as well as Louisiana Farm Bureau Facebook pages, and you can see it's just to the horizon, black soybeans. Yeah, let me put on my agronomist hat for a minute, just for anybody that's listening that, that doesn't raise soybeans. You get a soybean plant. It grows, it flowers, it puts on pods, and then the practice that we use in Louisiana is typically to spray a herbicide on that crop to be able to get it to quit growing. Our climate is is great for growing things. It's not real great for shutting plants down to be able to harvest them, uh, particularly in the type of of soybean that we grow now that, that is a higher yielding bean that wants to keep growing. But timing on when you do that, when you desiccate soybeans is crucial. And just to be blunt about it, this this rain event was not really forecasted to be what it turned out to be. I mean, they saw some rain, but you're going to see 60 to 70 percent chance of rain about anywhere in Louisiana this time of year. So it just was right when a bulk of the crop, the soybean crop in our heaviest soybean growing areas was ready for that shot of Paraquat and ready to to turn from green to brown and and get this crop out of the field so like will miller and others that we saw all around them uh soybeans of any of our crops in that area i mean we we're going to see problems in cotton if there's you know the the limited milo acres that we have out there also pretty susceptible to this Um, but corn has a little better chance but still some problems but soybeans man i mean it's an oilseed crop it's, it doesn't have a lot of protection from a pod. Our state has stink bugs, and if they pierce that little pod and open it up, moisture gets in. So there's just it's crucial, and unfortunately, this year it just didn't didn't pan out. Well, I'm, I I pulled this up. Uh, it's a weather. It's for the last thirty days, and that's not. I guess that's you said August eighteenth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that would be in, in ra- included in this, but there's a chunk of the Northeast Louisiana, that soybean growing region, the Delta. I'm seeing, according to this map from the National Weather Service, there are a big chunk of Franklin Parish that has 15 plus inches of rain in the last 30 days. And there, the rest of the that region is at least 10 inches. And one of the things, Andy and I, were we were up there this week talking to people, folks at the Ag Center, uh, different extensions all the all up the delta on their podcast and they're like yeah but it's not coming in three inches and then drying out for the next it's coming in an inch in a day an inch a day or a half inch a day for the last 30 days and it's staying wet stayed wet as the cloudy as every farmer knows soybeans don't like wet feet and they've had this wet feet 400 acres of will miller's property by the way were still underwater when we went there literally wow. i mean it was yeah, still you could flooded. smell it as soon as we you pulled could, up oh, i mean it's, it's just and it, there's fields like that what does that smell like uh fermented soybeans when um i mean carl's it's, it's, changing brady's diaper yeah. <laughs> there's similar smells yeah <laughs> that is that uh, yeah. there you go now we know the grassroots yeah. government now brought to you in smell vision <laughs> um but uh the you could smell the rot in the field when we went for that other track the bigger track it wasn't as bad but you could definitely smell the rot and they could see uh andy and will cracked open some pods full of mold um will's nose said you know he can harvest it 
but a lot of that's going to get blown back out of the backside of the combine as they as they go through the fields. And it's just this um, hitting at this critical time. The other big thing that I've got to point out here is Wilt said that any farmer in that area will probably tell you this was their most expensive crop ever. Mm -hmm. Um, For him, his previous record of irrigating the crop due to that drought, like we talked about, was six times. This year, he irrigated eight times. And so, you know, it's another sort of insult to injury about he had put all this money into this crop and he had to irrigate it. And now the reason it's ruined is water. So he irrigated it eight times. Diesel prices were above, what, $5 yeah, for a good bit. $5 yeah. at, at the low point. Yeah. Yeah. For farm diesel. Plus three times more this year for fertilizer than right. in years past, than the year before. Plus you're looking at, increases in insecticide and herbicide prices yeah that's that's a a lot of money going into a crop and it's just gone i mean what we we know disaster here in louisiana andy how many have we had just say last 10 years uh well we've gone six years straight asking congress for ad hoc disaster assistance used to be called WIP Plus, as of this year, uh, it was renamed to Emergency Relief Program, ERP. But yeah, six, six years in a row, the life of this farm bill every single year. Uh, the last real, the only real comparable in that time frame to what we're facing now, I mean, everybody on this thing knows we talked about it relentlessly. 2020, 2021 was named hurricanes, but 2018 was a poorly timed super heavy rain event again Mm -hmm. and that was that was uh even well i wouldn't say even worse but there was the other factor there where there was a a government assistance going on for our trade war with china at the time through mfp so anyway uh yeah we're we're and i that's just as far back as i looked about those programs and prior to that i mean i know there was still request it just was a little before my time yeah we and we we wanted to have that written down here to talk about you know because that that gets into farm bill and gets into these safety net programs but let's let's talk about so we got all this damage we've all seen it we've all got the pictures we've all heard the stories from these farmers what i mean it's clearly a disaster Mm -hmm. talking about the most expensive crop ever these farmers that are just watching their crops rot in the field what what are we doing about it? What's Louisiana Farm Bureau? Andy, I know this is this is your wheelhouse. What are we doing to help these farmers to to try and to raise that concern? Well, I've been talking about it for two weeks now, so it almost starts to make me feel like it's not much. But um, we're doing all we can do, and and that's advocacy, and that's it starts with trying to get what we know is a disaster. As you just said, the government has definitions for things and. The first step in this process to try to get some relief, some aid, some help is a disaster declaration. The Secretary of Agriculture has to make that declaration, and he has a threshold that his boots on the ground have to meet uh, for loss to give that designation. However, the way the process works, and and as Carl, as you said, my wheelhouse is reading uh, that boring law to see how that actually is done. And so in the simple terms, uh, the governor, the FSA director, 
they can go to Secretary Vilsack and request a declaration to be made. So that is the first step that we did. Farm Bureau was the first out of the gate. Uh, we asked our president, Jim Harper, called upon folks that we always are working with. Uh, first and foremost, Commissioner Mike Strain, who was already just like us, boots on the ground looking at it. And then our friends at the Cotton and Grain Association. So we we all jumped on a letter together, uh, got it to the governor, I believe, the 29th of August, which was, you know, we were just waiting for the rain to stop to know exactly what to ask and how, you know, how far and wide to ask it. But we got that out the door beginning of last week. Uh, the week went on. We were working with our congressional delegation just to keep them updated and, and they were, you know, getting calls as well. And so you saw on Friday the 2nd, Congresswoman Julia Letlow sent the governor uh, a letter similar to ours asking for the same thing. And then um, I believe this week uh, we'll see some state legislators start to publicly lean on the governor as well. So just to make sure I understand this right. So we're all sending letters to the governor for him to escalate it up to the secretary of agriculture. And he's the one that declares it a disaster. That's Governor right. John Bell Edwards does not declare these parishes disaster parishes or anything like that. No, when it comes to an agricultural disaster like this, it's up to the secretary for a secretarial declaration. So there is sometimes, you know, you'll see in press releases and such for evacuations and for other uh, state aid, you know, where there is money. There's no state money. There's no state action that can happen in ag disaster aid. So, yeah, he's he's making that request. Uh, you know, time after time when we've needed him to. And we think he will. I will say this part, we, we kind of jumped over drought, but we had just asked him and we're in the process of doing the same thing for drought mm -hmm. the week before this rain came. Uh, we're also just, so our cattle folks in, in the western part of the state don't feel left out. Ron Harrell's working to see, uh, check some data and do some Farm Bureau work on the drought that that people are still suffering from, mm -hmm. uh, even though they've gotten some rain showers. So yeah, apparently yeah. there was some issue with reporting of uh, of rain data in those areas, and so it wasn't included in the the D two or D three drought. Yeah, they never made D three in a couple of parishes that that our farmers feel like they should have, and some some data shows they should have. One of the things that was crazy to me, again, I said this, Andy and I went, we're on the podcast at the uh, LSU Ag Center, and that. That northeast, that that Delta region, they put out a podcast called the the Louisiana Delta Crop Report or, or yeah, the Crop Update, Crop Podcast, Crop yeah. Podcast. And I was having the realization that I was last time I was up that way was right before Brady was born, doing a story about the drought that was affecting even over in that area. Some of these farmers were just begging for a rain in that area that's now gotten ten, fifteen inches of rain in the last month. Yeah, so I mean, I it's, would, it's been like. Two totally complete, yeah. you know, extremes. I'll just, I mean, I want to give our listeners the benefit of listening, some some inside information. I was at a meeting last week and grabbed Governor Edwards by the arm. Uh, we were in the room together, so I didn't want to miss a chance to let him know, you know, what our teams were working on together. And uh, when I told him that we were asking about a rain event, he said, hold on. I thought y'all were asking for help on a drought. And so that's how quick this has turned around. and. Uh, he's aware. I don't want people to think that uh, he's, you know, his team and our team, that's just how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a matter of of putting the right pieces together and getting the request 
to where it needs to go. It's 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 honestly it's paperwork at this point. Mm-hmm. But I, I also not, I hate to even say this because I don't want it to de- diminish what people are going through. But this is going to be a, a while, you know, until it actually the request can be made. But actually getting the data we need to get the declaration, it's it's going to be months. Yeah, and that, let's go ahead and take it a step further. How much? How long will it be before farmers and ranchers could have cash in their hands? Well, the, the <laughs> first thing I say it could be months. The FSA has to make this thirty percent loss declar, you know, determination. So that doesn't necessarily have to be scale tickets, you know, harvest. They can go out and determine. I mean, Neil's uh, not an FSA employee nor an agronomist, but I'm pretty sure Neil could walk out in Will Miller's soybean field and tell you that there's a there's a 30% loss there. It'll pass the sniff test? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Literally and figuratively. So there'll be some of that. We talked to the Ag Center about how they can contribute to that. Dr. Kirk Guidry's working on disaster estimates. The whole package, it's 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 all hands on deck, but uh, <laughs> I really uh, hesitate to even talk about when farmers could see, you know, see disaster in hand because it's not guaranteed. We're we're uh, Carl and I talked about this on that episode. Congress is getting numb to this, just to be honest. I mean, it's year after year. They vote on a farm bill, and most of them are not from farm states, and they think, we've got that covered. Y'all have crop insurance. Why are y'all coming back to us You know, for more? So that's, that's a real thing. That's a real struggle that us, you know, that, that Farm Bureau and our organization is going to have to figure out you know, how we advocate for that. We're doing it, and we've been successful at it five times in a row, um, but the more you come back, the, the less chance I feel like you really have. And something I want to point out here is this kind of gets into the grassroots area of it. Historically, the farm bill had been one that was very top down. And with the Freedom to Farm Act in 96, I think, um, they loosened the the ties that farmers had to, you know, what crops they had to produce or not produce, et cetera. But we may have gone a little too far away from that um, in the sense that the um, the idea that farming is somehow decoupled from national interests. We need to decide as a country if farming in this country, providing food for the people in the United States is of strategic interest. I mean, obviously, everybody sitting in this room thinks so. But from a philosophical point of view, from a legislative point of view, especially with this new farm bill coming up, we shouldn't have to go ask for help every four years, you know, every year rather that we've done over the last six years, every time there's a disaster, it just should be built into the system to accommodate this because Andy's talking about it's usually months, if not a year or two, even before disaster aid comes in. We've seen that with hurricanes in the past. Well, reverse that. You as a citizen out there, uh, it's going to be months before we get you your food. Is that okay? Is that fine? Does that work for you? How long could most people last? Yeah. So, you know, and, and while those things aren't necessarily equivalent in terms of need, farmers can certainly last a lot longer without uh, that amount of money coming in. It's just a matter of prioritization. You know, when we're talking about infrastructure, when we're putting millions into a lock system, what about, you know, uh, producing 
areas for you know farmers to store all this grain? What about the things that farmers need to sustain them? And they're not even asking for that. They're just asking for help when their crop gets ruined by weather, which is completely 100% out of their control, to say, look, this is a national priority to sustain these farmers and keep them in business. Because if there's ever a crisis, God forbid, we're going to be turning to them to grow our food and feed us as quickly as humanly possible. But they've got to be there in order for that to happen. And for them to be there means they've got to be financially sustained. I'm going to stir up the hornet's nest even more just because not I see you. you're getting you're riled up. up. No, and not I just, Avery. I, I love to do it. Neil's preaching well, over here. I know. And uh, this, this is the, one of the things that really grinds my gears. So KALB out of Alexandria did a story in which they interviewed Ryan Yerby, Grant Parrish president sits on the louisiana farm bureau board super good guy great farmer but he's being affected by all this rain as well one of the comments under the story uh was was this and uh i think that we all can agree that uh this isn't the this is not reality this person commented live like the rest of us quit building million dollar homes and trying to live like millionaires lifestyle i'm not saying starve but quit trying to live on taxpayer money if you can't make it like normal taxpayers quit there are careers for y'all out there or sell it to bill gates if he don't own you already there is i I wanted to reply to that with uh the luke skywalker quote everything you just said is wrong because everything that person just commented was wrong i don't know a single farmer who lives in a million dollar home. Well, I mean, even I, if they did, my my response to that is no problem. Grow your own food. You know, you'd live totally off the grid. See how easy it is. Pay yeah. for that land. Go out in there and buy that. You know, what what could land possibly cost? Fifty dollars? I mean, you know. Ten thousand dollars an acre in some places, okay? Seriously. There Go out were, there and grow it yourself. I, you didn't respond respond to that, but I'm sure there I did see a few of the comments. There were like a hundred plus comments on there and I did see some of those I would love to see my million dollar home by a few farmers, but yeah, it's, it's, it's this lack, it's this ignorance or lack of, and I say ignorance in the most by definition, lack of knowledge is people don't understand. But it gets, it gets to Neil's point about what are we going to say about agriculture as part of our security, mm -hmm. as part of being part of the social fabric that makes us a country that makes us the united states and the fact that i can walk down to the grocery store well maybe i can't walk because it's kind of far from my house but i can go to the grocery store and my gosh there's a plethora of food i i have to pick which flavor of cheerios i want we have enough oats in this country to where we can flavor it 10 different ways for crying out loud about a year ago in the the tail end of the covid manna from dc raining down we sat here in this on this pod and talked about food security no meat on the shelves congress was kicking out millions for small to medium-sized packing guys we've we've moved on like it, that's how quick i mean we can sit here all day and we can talk about uh food security but it's just not a reality in our country that 
people think they're going to go hungry. And when you get that spoiled, uh, for a guy like me that has to find a narrative and has to put a story, you know, to carry this message, I'll be honest with you, that's not one I use very often because it, it just doesn't play anymore because we're, we're just so politicized and we're so polar and all what y'all just said about hundreds of comments and that's, I mean, that person and that narrative, it makes it to DC. Um, you know, it, we, that's, that's my job security is that educational factor that farmers aren't living in million dollar homes. Farmers aren't surviving off the government. Cause let me tell you what a uh, surviving off the government looks like for a farmer. Uh, this soybean crop, most of our Louisiana soybean farmers have crop insurance somewhere from a 65 to 75, maybe up to 80 percent uh, yield protection. That's yield. We already talked about all the inputs. So a uh, 60 bushel bean crop is not the same this year as it's been in the past, but we work off historical averages. So and 60 is great, by the way, right. higher than any state average we've ever had. But for our Delta ground, let's just say 60 bushels. Well, you only get paid, uh, you know, if you file for crop insurance to, let's just say, two thirds of that. Well, that's if you trigger. If you, it, I'm not going to keep unpacking that because it's, it's too detailed, but I'll just say this. If you and your house can live off of two thirds of your income for six years in a row and still sustain yourself, then please come do Kayla and I's budget because <laughs> we're not going to make it. So that's what we're that's what we're asking farmers to do at best. So that's why we have to continue to go back six years in a row and ask for something else because it's just not cutting it. So what can be done about it? We're moving into the debate for the 2023 farm bill. Is is that the place to address it and what what does that need to look like? Well, I'll just say first what we are trying to do in the immediate uh, and then I'll jump to farm bill. The immediate, uh, the government has to stay funded. We're under 30 days now. Uh, so I was working today to see if there's any slight chance of getting in on a continuing resolution. Uh, there's two ways that can happen. You can have what they call a clean CR where they just rubber stamp all the amounts that the government's funded from last fiscal year and kick it forward to whatever date Congress wants to write down. or you can do that plus some, which is not a clean CR, and all the friends that we have in D.C. tell me that that's very unlikely. So not putting a lot of stock in that. I don't want folks to get their hopes up. The next is some larger packages. Um, the most important probably is a National Defense Act. It, that's something that gets like a farm bill that gets a lot of bipartisan support. Um, but everything in D.C. these days is omnibus, is we're going to take one thing that should be simple, like continuing to fund our military and defense systems and try to tack on all this other stuff. That's just the game I have to play. So uh, we'll look to that and see if there's any will to tack on uh, some disaster aid. We have uh, Representative Thompson out of California that's already dropped a bill uh, this session, you know, this congressional calendar. Uh, and then also Senator Hoven out of South Dakota uh, is on the Senate side pushing for this for drought. So um, 
we have players, we have the pieces. It's just a matter now of finding that vehicle, which is my typical uh, thing that I have to sort through. And one of the things that that this should be, this is not just our Congress folks from Louisiana that have to say, oh, yeah, we all we all agree we have a disaster. No, it's all 50 states become players in this. So folks, even in states that aren't impacted by any natural disaster, even if it's drought or wildfire or excessive rain for us, it's something that I hate to say it this way. We have to go and sell it. Right. I mean, is that that the correct term or we have to we have to get people on board to understand our problems and and consensus building. Yeah, you have to you have to get votes. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to tell people how easy my job is, but uh, normally I have a pretty easy hurdle with getting our delegation to rally around something. We've got, you know, eight total members, six House, two Senate um, that by and large, even though one is of a different party, when it comes to ag and disaster and taking care of the home team, we can usually all rally around that. So I just kind of assume that. And then I go to work calling friends in other states and trying to do that next step because then then you get into the whole Joe and I talk about it, whether it's Fed or state, who's ranking member, what committee do you have to go through? That's the kind of stuff that I have to think through in my office every day. And and thankfully there's some some pretty heavy hitters that uh have some interest in this and you know, who knows what disasters may come, what hurricane pops up and all of a sudden the ranking member of appropriations, if a hurricane comes through Alabama. Maybe he's a little more uh, excited about doing something. Well, not excited, but a little more uh, admittable. On, on board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do want to point out that among the pictures we had, we posted pictures, Andy and Will out in the field. Some other folks got out there. The story we saw with Ryan Yerby, but, um, and we talk about her all the time, but uh, Representative Julia Letlow was out there very soon after this started, and she was in the field. So at least that one member of our delegation is quite aware of, of what's going on. Yeah, and that, I mean- she sent a letter, you know, she's, she's literally been out in fields like we have. Um, but we've talked, I don't, mm, I don't remember if this had happened the last time we were on or not, but, uh, Congresswoman Letlow is no longer on house ag committee. Uh, she's on the house appropriations committee. So for when you, when you talk about writing checks, you couldn't have a, a better person in a better spot. So and she's she's going to be huge. And she's on the Ag Subcommittee right. of the Appropriations which, Committee, which where is- Where these you know bills would be referred to, and, and she'll be a huge voice for us on that, like she was on the, the House Ag Committee. So you touched on what's going on now. What, what do we need to do with the debate moving forward on the next farm bill? Yeah, this is, uh, this is something I don't think our members hear enough. Uh, and it's two words, policy development. This organization is 100 years old, and we're 100 years old because we have a system. We have, a, we have you know, you want to talk, we're in football season. Let's talk about schemes. Let's talk about X's and O's. You can, uh, you can recruit. You can have great, um, you know, talent. I think we got some good talent in this room. We got good talent <laughs> in our volunteer leaders, but you hear it all the time on ESPN. They talk about preparation. They talk about their scheme and, and doing the things you have to do in practice to be able to be ready when the lights come on. Uh, that's where we are in the next farm bill. We're in that preparation room. We're in uh, our board meetings at the parish level 
And that's where we need ideas. I don't sit here today and tell you how to fix crop insurance. I don't know how to fix, uh, you know, ad hoc disaster. Um, once what I need is ideas. I can help, you know, our members figure out the politics or figure out budget baseline and is there going to be any new money? You know, we can talk about that. But until we have that idea, you know, that brainstorm, that that boots on the ground to come to us and give us ideas, um, then we're just another squeaky wheel in a town full overflowing of the squeakiest wheels you will ever hear. So that's why we're so effective is because we come with solutions. We don't just come with problems. And all of that starts here on the parish level. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we've, you know, COVID and just transitions and different things. Um, that's something that I think Louisiana Farm Bureau's got to refocus on. And, and, you know, our parishes, they always say, don't let a good disaster go to waste. And I have a feeling there's going to be a number of parishes after this storm getting in a room and, and talking about what their problems are. So let's, let's take that one step further. Um, call us, call your field service director, call the commodity department. We will come. We will sit down and have that conversation with you in your parish any day of the week, any time of the day. We would love to. And uh, ultimately, if we don't start that here in September, by the time we get to late June in New Orleans next year, we won't have the, the resolutions we need. And then we won't have the, the items we need for our Farm Bill Study Committee to go, you know next summer, next fall, to shape a farm bill how we need it to be shaped. Because I assure you, I'm on calls every day with uh, Midwestern commodity groups with, you know, I'm, I'm tuning in to other groups. They're out there doing it. They're trying to figure out how they want it to be done. And so if we're not trying to shape it better for, you know, the Gulf South and the crops we grow, rice, sugar, cotton, things that not everybody does, uh, we're going to be sitting on the sideline. I think I think you've said it or Joe has said it, maybe both of y'all have said it, but that that late June at convention when we find that policy, I say we, when our volunteers set that policy and they we print that book, that's our marching orders. That's your marching orders. That's Joe's marching orders in the state capitol. That's what we, you know, advocate on behalf of, saying, Hey, this is what our policy says. Mm-hmm. Let's go this direction. So that's why we need that we need that development. We need that that input from our volunteer leaders. We can't, I mean, think about if our, I mean, our policy book has likely changed and I don't want to talk too much about, I don't know it well enough to say, but in a hundred years, that a lot's been added to that policy book to, to shape the direction of this organization. And that's vital to keep happening for this next hundred years. The way I look at it, the three of you guys and what y'all do with Twyla and all of our PR stuff, that gets us to the table. That gets, you know, attention and gets, our uh, delegation to, to pay attention and we have that face and that story that we always talk about. But once you get to that table, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? What plan do you have? Because it, it, it moves quick in D.C. You get a meeting, you've got about 15 minutes. And if you don't have something to, to leave behind that looks like that policy book, not that we hand them the whole thing, but you know, you take that one slice out of there that's your priority issue and you leave it, you'd be amazed at where that ends up. You know, I'm, I'm the young guy in my department, but if Brian or Ron was in here, Kyle McCann, they would tell you the, the things we've been able to do with, we're, we're not going to be, 
you know, world changing for a farm bill. But if we can have that one thing or that two or three things that we can weave in there and we can find friends and, and make a difference, uh, it, it'll pay off. Well, the other thing, you know, that I want to point out is, is how DC works. in Some of this is that as Andy alluded to, there's a lot of conversations going on with different states, different things, competing interests within agriculture alone. The staffers and the legislators, the, the representative senators, do that across every issue in the United States. And so when you go to them and you say, well, we've got a problem and you have nothing else to offer, that means what you're telling them is they have to devote time in that office to addressing that problem, develop those policies on, on their own without your guidance. So when we go in, when Andy goes in and hands them that policy, here's our problem, here's our specific need to address this, then you get that. That's work that they don't have to do. That's, that's time that they don't have to invest in it. They can you know, look at it and say, you know, yeah, that's a good idea. We can fit it in this or maybe just change these one or two things to make it work for whatever legislation's on the table. Quick question, Andy. If we went to any congressional office and said, we have an issue, end of story, what are they going to do with that? They're going to smile and they're going to, or if it's a bat, you know, if it's a real bat, tell you how sorry they are and how they'll really be working on that. And they'll thank you for coming. And then they'll, End of story. They'll, That's uh, it. they'll go to the next guy that told them the, Gave the them problem from the other side that, that our problem is their problem and that he's got to win that he or she has to win their votes too. I mean, that's, there's just, all day every day and that it's a dead this end. isn't this isn't me telling everybody this we have literally sat in their offices and had high-ranking congressional members look us in the eye and say i can help you because you helped me i can help you because you gave me the solution and made this easier for me to go home and explain myself that's that's the difference and i think the other difference maker there is that it's it's not you necessarily delivering that message it's a volunteer leader it's one of our farmers it's one of our ranchers it's someone who is giving of their time and is actually affected mm -hmm. by this issue not to say that you're not andy but no. as you know it it's the difference of a paid spokesperson versus skin in the game yeah the other thing I wanted to add in here is don't think just because you're a farmer in a rural area, your voice isn't going to make it to that national level. It's really critical that you participate. And one of the reasons is for, as Andy said, those specific policy solutions that come forward. But the other thing is, is that let's say you need to ask the question, is crop insurance working for you? Let's just say hypothetically way out there, the answer to that is no. So how is it not working for you? What could be changed? What could be different? We put those policy suggestions forward. We put that in front of Congress. Even if they reject those solutions, then when we come back later on for the next farm bill or even the next year for the ad hoc, we can say, well, you didn't address it with this piece of legislation here. So now it's this issue now. And so even if it doesn't work for them this year, it can work in the future. It can be some sort of way. And we have those solutions when we know those things go wrong in the future. We have that ready made for it. It's a long game. It, it, it never stops. My, <laughs> my department head uh, has worked for this organization over 40 years and tells me every day, 
that he's still working on some of the same issues that the day he started. So doesn't mean we don't solve things. It just means that it keeps coming back around and we're just constantly tweaking to, to try to make this thing work and keep folks in business. We've been doing it a hundred years successfully. So I think we'll, we'll keep doing that. But if we don't, you know, we don't keep the, the oil in the engine and keep this thing going, then, then it won't. Um, I don't think we want to keep this podcast going much longer because I was looking at the time and I'm like, yeah, we've been we've been chatting for a while. We're we're making it's up for while. lost time. Been a while. Yeah, and probably heard some rumbles of thunder as we were uh, talking about uh, the rain because it's coming down right outside right now. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, definitely a, a tough time for for many of our folks, and I know that makes uh, for work for Andy and everyone else in the commodity department, and for us in communications. Quick question, Andy: Is there any Thing you need from our grassroots today other than for them to just keep farming and, and, and putting food on our tables as best they can? Keep records. Uh, if you're called upon by FSA or the Ag Center, be honest and as transparent as you can be. It's not going to go anywhere that you wouldn't want it to go, I can assure you. And then don't, when that combine shuts off and you've got this season in, you know, in the bag, whatever that looks like, don't leave it there. Then, you know, then it'll be meeting season and it'll be time to, to do what I was talking about, to get in a room and let's figure out some solutions. And that's the beauty of, if you're listening to this, hopefully, I mean, you're, you're probably a Farm Bureau active leader, but uh, you got people here that are not expecting you to look up what does and doesn't work for crop insurance every day as far as the X's and O's. We'll do that for you, but we need to know why and and what you want to see it do better so just uh don't let that disaster go to waste but other than that keep your head up i mean it's tough Mm -hmm. times um and we're here to i told a lot of people i've been a a lawyer a lobbyist a therapist a religious counselor Uh, happy to be all those things that's why i love my job i get to work with really good people and and do really good things well on that note i will wrap things up uh, on behalf of Andy Brown, Neil Malasaw, and Carl Wiggers, I'm Avery Davidson. Thank you for joining us for the Grassroots Government Podcast, because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu.